I'm Henry Standage, and you're listening to the Western Science Speaks podcast. Video games are everywhere, which might be confusing. According to data taken in 2015, only 25% of North Americans over the age of 35 even play video games. The video game industry isn't just thriving because people are playing, though. In fact, it's because people are watching. Popular online video game streamers are now making close to seven figures a month due to the traffic generated from hundreds of thousands of daily viewers. Video games are creating a more realistic immersion into the virtual world and keeping those worlds fresh and complex enough that people want to keep returning. Today, we're going to be talking with one of the people who helped create the smoke and mirrors that amuse us so much. Dr. Michael Kachaba from the Department of Computer Science at Western University joins the podcast. Here's our discussion now. Can you talk about some of the things that you and your lab do here at Western? So the main thing that we do in our lab is we focus on various different issues in game development. And when I'm talking game development, I'm talking video games because we're in computer science here. It's fun and exciting stuff. Most of it generally revolves around us trying to either make better games or make games in better ways. And most of our recent work is in things like improving storytelling in games, making more believable characters in games, taking a look at creating more adaptive games, so things that adjust to the player's needs and the player's expectations and also now more so in taking a look at game analytics and quantitative design in games things like that how do you go about programming a convincingly human character um it's challenging work usually what it involves is going back to trying to model the social side of things the social sciences side of things so looking at psychology looking at sociology looking at anthropology taking a look at how real people behave, how they work, how can we try and abstract some of that model, some of that, distill some of that down into some of the key or critical elements and focus on trying to deliver those things. People are surprisingly complex and unpredictable things to try and work with. And what we have to do is try and find some way of, again, breaking those down to some of the key components that we can then try and model and program around to try and make um, more believable characters. We talked uh, previously, you mentioned that it's not necessarily creating a human consciousness, it's creating the appearance of a human consciousness. Yeah, it's all smoke and mirrors. It's all about an act, trying to create something that will convince you that they are real in whatever context it is that they're working in. It could be someone who at the moment for whatever reason is incredibly terrified and so if they can convince you through their performance that they are terrified then they're doing their job they don't really have to understand what it means to be terrified or actually really feel fear as long as they can give that performance then that's really what we're looking at so it's it's not about trying to have something that is truly conscious or truly intelligent it um, like you try and pursue through more traditional artificial intelligence research. What we're trying to do is create things that can act and perform in ways that um, support the game from that perspective. Right. What I find really interesting is to say there's a huge video game market in Asia. 
And so how do you input cultural differences? So a human in America is way different. They might, their natural acting is going to be way different than a Japanese person. That's why you have to take a look at the cultural and anthropological perspective on things, because you need to be able to capture those kinds of norms and differences if you're wanting to try and create something and then allow what you create, the characters that you make, to be varied in the way that they um, ascribe to those norms and those differences and what those actually are in the first place. So you, that, that's why you need to take a look at, at, at a wide range of the social sciences to kind of derive the models and what we're trying to build here. Mm -hmm. And it seems like uh, a lot of gaming technology has been focused on building more realistic worlds. Mm -hmm. And so why do you think that seems to be a point of emphasis right now? Well, I think that as we keep going forward, um, the expectations that players have are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so we see that there's been tremendous advancements in computer graphics. So our ability to create something that looks realistic, that... You know, you, you see a picture, you see a video of it, you see a camera pan through something, and it's like, wow, that, that just looks amazing. That is absolutely incredible. But because we're able to do something visually that looks so good, we have to kind of raise the way that things act and behave to a similar level. Otherwise, there's going to be this very disjoint experience. It's going to be very apparent to the player that they're walking through a world but it's artificial because it looks real but nothing actually acts real or there's subtle differences between what you expect it's it's really really strange like if if the if visually things did not look as good we wouldn't need to worry about things acting as good because our relative levels of expectations would be different but because we're able to kind of push things so far in one dimension we have to make sure it's firing in all dimensions equally well, or else the experience is going to seem very disjoint and people will have a hard time being immersed or engaged with things. Yeah, to me it feels like video games for my generation and now the younger generation are almost like what movies were to people in the 60s and 70s and 80s. It's all about that escape, kind of, yeah. from the real world. And it feels like video games are getting so good at creating that realistic atmosphere. No, and, 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 and that's true. Like People play games for many, many different reasons, but a lot of it comes down to um, immersing themselves in this pretend reality. And again, if we, if we really want them to feel immersed, then it needs to be something that kind of captures them both visually and intellectually and socially. And in order to do that, we need to be trying to advancing the state of the art in all of these different directions at the same time. You had some pretty cool examples when we talked before. Could you just talk about one of the things you talked about before with just creating that realism? Yeah, so one of the things we did, for example, was we focused on using machine learning to have an AI learn how to act according to a set of motivations you can have. And so we took a look at psychological models for motivations, picked one, and then we started scaling up an AI that would learn by exploring its environment um, how to satisfy first being hungry and then wanting to be hungry and wanting to be healthy and then wanting to be hungry, healthy, and social and just kept adding new layers of complexity onto it. But each time you add a new layer of complexity, 
it'll do interesting things, but then also fail in interesting ways that make sense once you pull it apart and say, why did it do this? Yeah. Um, so you'd have something, for example, that would go to the grocery store and eat in the grocery store as it bought food right off the shelf because that was more convenient. And you're then left trying to say, well, how do we how do we teach it without explicitly saying not to do that? How do we teach it that that's not the way that people act when it's a perfectly reasonable thing to do when you're hungry? Um, and there's interesting challenges that way, which is, I think, one of the, the going to be the biggest barrier in seeing some of these things ultimately show up in video games is you have to be comfortable with losing and giving up a certain amount of control over the experience. So people that are designing and writing games and writing stories have to say, you know, the more autonomy that we give to these characters, more capability we give to them, the bigger the chances are that they're going to do something that buggers things up yeah. royally. The more trial and, have, and error. Yeah, and, and you have to be willing to accept some of those things. As long as those things are happening in ways that ultimately make sense and are reasonable, you have to, this kind of ad-libbing by AI, you just have to accept and just roll with it. Um, you use the example of you know film and television. Well, quite often you'll have an actor in the moment that will decide, you know what, I'm just going to say this, and or something strange happens by accident, and you just roll with it. And we need to be able to do that in games, and that's something that we need to be able to kind of loosen some of these controls to allow some of these interesting things to happen and to emerge out of the experience. And you've talked about anthropology and sociology already, mm -hmm. and... The idea of setting social norms and learning them, it's completely connected to that idea, too. Exactly. It's how we came to understand how to operate. Exactly. And it's a, trying to capture those things in a way that then comes across on the screen in a way that makes sense, in a, in a way that the player kind of gets and understands, appreciates, and, and ultimately believes in it. It's, there's lots of challenges in, in trying to do that. So we've been making some interesting headway because up until this point it was almost like a vacuum because there wasn't a whole lot of things going on from a, a research perspective in this and we've been making interesting ground but there's still so much ground to cover um lots of challenging things to do so speaking of challenges so gaming's been shifting to online networking for feels like almost two decades now maybe a decade yeah. with Xbox Live coming out and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. As a programmer, how does this change your work? This idea of everyone wants multiplayer now. It introduces some new challenges because of both the scale that you're having to operate under and also just the fact that people are now in different locations. So now you have to worry about latency and communication because you want everybody to feel that they're all in the same world or all playing on the same console. But that physical distance separates and means that data needs to travel across the city, across the country, around the world. That takes time. And we need to find interesting ways of masking that so that the players all feel like they're all still in the same world. And when we're trying to improve both the graphical fidelity and the AI fidelity while doing all these things at the same time, this, these are monumental challenges in computing that we're trying to do, but do in real time in a distributed fashion, it's, it, it's, a, it's definitely a challenge. We've done some work here in taking a look at trying to manage and mask latency in games 
Um, so by latency, you just give a definition because oh, sorry, people don't know what yeah. that means. Yeah, um, sorry. Yeah, it's a it's a term we use in 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 the in the field. It, it means the delay between things. So you you don't want it to be the kind of thing um, if you've ever seen lag or stutter in a game. Like you might be playing a game like say an Overwatch or a Fortnite, and you're watching someone on the screen and you're lining up your shot, and then all of a sudden they jump forwards or backwards mm-hmm. and you miss. Or all of a sudden, someone appears from out of nowhere and shoots at you, and you have no time to react, and they weren't there before. Those kinds of things are artifacts of lag and latency, because the game is trying to make a, a single unified look at what the game looks like when you know it takes some number of microseconds or milliseconds or even seconds for messages to go from, say, your console to their server down to someone else's console. Like you're looking into the past or maybe into the future when you're playing a game online. And so it becomes this challenge to try and say, how do we try and give everybody a uniform look of what's going on in the game, but not having everybody have to wait to see what that is. If you're playing a turn-based game where you take a turn and I take a turn, so we're playing like chess or something like that, then this Mm -hmm. problem evaporates for the most part. But when you're doing everything in real time, that's a huge challenge. I think there are certain jobs where it's best to be invisible. So I was a soccer referee growing up, and if people are noticing the referee, it's typically a bad thing Mm -hmm. for me. It usually means they're complaining. And I think programming these servers online is kind of a similar thing. Yeah. Where if people are noticing it, that illusion is broken, it's ah, like they're screaming at the TV. Exactly. Kind of the, the scapegoat. It, it's working the best when all of this magic is happening and no one's aware that it's happening. That means everything is working and coming together. Yeah. As soon as they're waking up and they're noticing that, you know, that guy's popping as he's moving along there. Or that AI is running straight into a wall and isn't stopping or turning around or doing anything. It's just running into that wall. Those are things that people you know, notice and say, there's something wrong with this, and that's waking them up out of this illusion, this dream that you're trying to immerse them in. And trying to solve those, like for us as people, those are obvious problems. It's like, no, dude, you should not be running into the wall like that. Or somebody should not be like popping in and out as they're moving across the world. Those are obvious problems to us to see, but to solve, those are tremendous challenges. Uh, Speaking of that immersion, what are some of the more subtle things that you guys do here to help create that? Um, Often it's all in the little things that you do. So it's trying so that, um, for example, when you do something in a game, an AI notices that you do that, and it changes how it would act towards you as a result. It's little things like that that we take for granted because as people we would see someone doing it. So if you walk into uh, a restaurant and you treat the server in a rude fashion, then you might expect other customers to kind of be looking at you in a strange way, or that other servers might come up to you and treat you in a rude fashion, or somebody might ask you to leave the establishment if, if it persists or gets too bad. So you expect all of those things to happen as a person, but those things happening all behind the scenes require a lot of interactions of some fairly complex machinery in order to make that work. And those are the kinds of things we're trying to do, is to make it so that not only do the um, AIs 
have the capabilities to do these things. But we're packaging up these tools in a way so that we can give them to developers and they don't have to do all of this grunt work and all this heavy lifting themselves. We're creating reusable solutions to these problems so that a developer can be using a package like Unity, for example. They can take some of our packages, pop them in, and all of a sudden things are just working for them. And those are other challenges, but yeah. I remember uh, like sneaking Grand Theft Auto on once my parents would go to bed as like a teenager and just being thinking it was something that was so it, interesting. It is. Um, I often use Grand Theft Auto as an example. Like from like a moral, social, ethical standpoint, there's lots of issues with it. But mm -hmm. <laughs> just in terms of what they've been able to pull together from a technological standpoint is impressive. You might disagree with kind of the content and the direction they take with things, but what they've been able to accomplish is is really, really quite impressive in terms of um, just the sheer variety of things you can do inside those worlds and the amount of interaction and the variety of interaction you can have within that world. It is just impressive. Again, the, the level of violence and the other problems yeah. that it has, that's a discussion for a different time. But just in terms of the technology, it's, it's, it's really interesting what they've been able to do. Yeah. And so uh, the last kind of point I wanted to cover with you was if you guys have done any virtual reality work. Yeah, so we've, we've done some work in VR uh, in a few different things, some of it in terms of building out tools and technologies for developers. So we've done some work with industry, so different companies that are working on different technologies for, uh, for allowing you to interact with VR, so things that you would, wearable technologies, so that you can reach out and grab things, for example. And we've done some work in building some game tools for developers to go along with some of those things. We've also done some work more on the application side of things in, in for example, the medical space where we've done work um, in creating virtual environments for um, Parkinson's rehabilitation. Um, we've done some work with VR for um, measuring the impact of heavy machinery on the human body. We've been involved in, in a few different things from that perspective and all really, you know, interesting challenges that come through the injection of VR into things. Do you believe in it as a therapeutic method? Oh, absolutely. Um, there, there's obviously going to be differences between doing things in the real world and the virtual world, but the virtual world has the potential to allow us to do things in clinic that are much closer to how things work in the real world in a much safer and more controlled environment. So one of the things we were doing with uh, on the Parkinson side was taking a look at traffic simulations where you're wanting to take a look at how people navigate through a street with cars going past it and having to cross at a crosswalk and you have to worry about things like gate freezing. That's a tremendous problem that you would not want to explore in the real world because there's obvious danger and implications from doing that. But you can remove a certain amount of the danger from things by looking at things in the virtual world. Now, of course, you can argue the removal of real danger might skew and disrupt things. But actually, the what we found is in the virtual world, there's still an awful lot of carryover between the virtual and the real world. So yeah, I think there is a fair bit of potential there. Do you believe it's kind of the fr final frontier for gaming? Because I think there'll always be uh, a market for people who want to play console. 
And I think even they'll always be marked for people who want to play, like, old console, like GameCube. But I think for the mass, it does kind of seem like that final frontier. Um, I would hesitate in labeling anything as a final frontier. Fair enough. The, the more we do things, the more we go. Uh, I've seen, like, over the years, you'd say, wow, this is the best I've ever seen. We're never going to get better than this. And then, you know, two, three, five years later, it's like, okay, that bar keeps getting moved further and further and further down. So um, I see, you know, the the introduction and the, the modernization and the, the widespread use of VR is kind of like an, a next step in the evolution of gaming, but I don't see it as a final step. I see several final frontiers from here, um, and, and that's what makes, you know, work in gaming and R&D in this space really exciting is that no matter how far you push that boundary, there's always further that you can keep pushing it.